Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. And I do think part of being a storyteller is that, you know, old adage of, you know, know thy audience. So understanding your audience, what is it that they want to hear? Not necessarily what is it the story that you want to tell, but what is it about your story that's going to resonate and have an impact with them? Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Mickey Onveral, the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at TIAA, whose mission is to help those who help others find confidence in retirement. TIAA is an acronym for Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association. It was founded 105 years ago by Andrew Carnegie to help teachers with their financial security in their retirement. TIAA is now a Fortune 100 financial services organization with revenue north of $40 billion, serving clients in academic, research, cultural, medical, and governmental fields. My guest, Mickey, is a return guest on the CMO podcast. I interviewed Mickey in October 2021 when she was the CEO of Bonobos, the apparel brand at that time owned by Walmart. This is the first guest we've had who was a CMO, who became a CEO, and then returned to being a CMO. It's an interesting story, which we will explore in depth in this conversation. Mickey is a graduate of Cambridge University, where she studied French and Spanish, before beginning a career that took her to L'Oreal, Kellogg's, eBay, Trulia, Bonobos, and now TIAA. This is my chat with the CEO who discovered she would much rather be a CMO. Here's Mickey. Mickey, welcome back to the CMO podcast. I re-listened to our recording 22 months ago when you were CEO of Bonobos, and it was bonkers good. (laughs) Bonkers good. That's the sort of thing I say. Are you quoting me back at myself, Jim? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. (laughs) I love it. Now, do you remember 22 months ago what the big theme was in our discussion? I feel like this is a quiz and that I should have gone and re-listened to it myself, but I hate listening to myself, so I didn't. Well, the big theme was positivity Ah. in our last episode. And I asked you 22 months ago what you were most positive about. And you said you felt we were entering, I'm even quoting you, sir, a new era, Mm. a new dawn with a tremendous appetite among people at large for positive change. Mm -hmm. So here we are 22 months later. How do you think now about that prognosis? Well, I'm not sure I necessarily had the right crystal ball in front of me, did I? When I think about everything that's happened you know, macroeconomically, you know, culturally, 
socially, politically in the last 22 months. So clearly I should be sending that crystal ball back for a, for a refund. <laughs> Maybe it is because I am endlessly positive. I still believe in, you know, the, the power of human nature to create change, the desire for people to create change for the greater good. So, you know, I'm an endless uh, optimist. So maybe if you ask me again now, I would still say the same thing. There just seems to be like things keep getting in the way. Yeah. Well, we recorded sort of as we were coming out of the of the pandemic last time, and there were glimmers of hope and life returning to normal, something different. Yeah. But something, yeah, if there is a normal, but so, something different. So I think we were all feeling a little bit of that. If I ask you the question right now, we'll, we'll, we'll get into some positivity over the next hour or so, but what are you feeling positive, positive about now as you look forward? I do think that, you know, things are obviously incredibly challenging for many, many different communities, you know, within the US, but also, you know, in the world at large. And it does feel like if you, you know, read the press headlines, whether it's, you know, the ongoing war in Ukraine, issues in Palestine, whether it's fires in Hawaii, you know, it does feel like we're consistently bombarded with things that are incredibly, incredibly challenging, either at the macro level or at the kind of individual level. But I think that part of, and again, maybe this is my optimistic nature, I personally try and look for things in the micro and the the, the small things that give um, people joy and excitement. And honestly, I think that can be everything from the fact that people are returning to travel and they're exploring the world again and they're having kind of experiences with you know different cultures and travel, which I do believe is actually something that brings a lot of positive impact to the world at large as people experience different cultures and and communities. So I think whether it's that or then down to the really kind of micro, the fact that, you know, on a personal note, the fact that my children are, you know, fully in school and, you know, my youngest child who's eight, you know, lived through the pandemic starting as a pre-kindergarten kid. And he became a little bit feral during the pandemic. And it's taken a while for him to re-socialize and sort of catch up, not necessarily academically, but socially. So I think about it in the world at large, you know, where are the positive glimmers as well as on the kind of personal note, where do I find joy and positivity in the day to day, even though there is this sort of series of seemingly very sort of dark looming clouds over so many of us, if not all of us. Well, this podcast that we are doing is a first for this show, and this show is almost five years old. It's, it's the first time we've had a CMO who turned CEO, who then turned CMO again. So, Mickey, you're a big believer in the power of storytelling, which we will explore in this episode. But I, we need to start with that story. Last time we chatted, you were the CEO of Bonobos, having a great time. It's a marvelous episode, by the way, for our listeners. You should go back and listen to it. It's a beautiful, beautiful discussion. So, tell us the story of why you left that role and how you happened upon this one and and why this category and why this <laughs> brand in your decision to be a CMO again. So many questions, Jim. I know. Well, we can I spend the rest it. of the hour with you just answering that one. Just answering that one. So, you know, I'm a big believer from a career perspective about running to something and not away from something. So this, you know, I loved the role at Bonobos. I have a massive passion for that brand, that culture, the team, the product, everything that they continue to do. 
So it wasn't so much as leaving Bonobos, but about kind of what what attracted me to TIAA and what did I run to? And I and I ran to it for a few reasons. One was I think starting with the larger purpose of the organization and wanting in this next chapter of my career to do something that really mattered. And the reality is, is 40% of Americans will not have enough to retire. And that has a massive range within it that can look like everything from, you know, an individual who is able to be supported by their family if they don't have enough, which has a knock-on impact on their family, through to people who honestly are, you know, left without any kind of recourse toward their end of their lives. So for me, it mattered. Um, That was the first thing. I think the second thing was it was a transformation role. You know, TIA is 105 years old almost. And, you know, it is a a brand that existed as a monopoly in the higher education space for its first 95 years. But competition started 10 years ago and is increasingly um, aggressive. And so for me, the question was, oh, how do we transform this brand and this culture and this organization for a new chapter of growth in a newly kind of competitive context? And that kind of transformation is really exciting for me. And I had done it at eBay with eBay 3.0. You know, that was a 10-year-old company. I had done it at Trulia, a 10-year-old company looking for its next growth trajectory. I'd done it at Bonobos, another 10-year-old company looking for its next growth trajectory. So for me to work on a transformation agenda at a company that was 105 years old with an awful lot more history behind it for, for good and for bad was a really interesting kind of intellectual challenge. And then I think the third part about it was the people, which for me, one of the things that I really love about any organization is, you know, diverse perspectives around the table, but a common value set. And what I found at at TIAA with, you know, my colleagues around the executive committee table was an incredibly diverse set of experiences, but a very common value set. And I will tell you that, you know, to your question about going into financial services, one of my concerns was, was I going to be the odd one out? And was I going to be the, you know, the quirky marketer in the corner that didn't speak everybody else's language? And so when I was going through the interview process, one of the things that was really important to me was to meet a broad set of the executive committee. And in that process, I met our CFO, Dave Darich, and our chief administrative officer, Derek Ferguson. And that was the moment I was fully sold, you know. Dave had just come back from a stint um, in Japan and had like a really interesting worldview. He's uh, from Barbados and lives that on his heart, uh, on his sleeve. And, you know, he brought this joy to our conversation that I found really infectious. You know, Derek used to be the CEO of P. Diddy's companies. And I was like, oh, this is a really eclectic group of human beings with this shared value set that I really want to be around the table with. So the company and its challenge and its transformation was what attracted me. And then that decision of, does it feel like it's going backwards to go from CEO to CMO was was the question I was left with. And the reality is, is I love the craft of marketing. I absolutely love the craft of marketing. And this was an opportunity 
to really champion and lead and grow a brand that has purpose on a much bigger stage. You know, this is an, an enormous, you know, company relative to Bonobo. So the ability to have an impact that mattered with a greater population was frankly almost too too good to refuse. And how I thought about it was how do I bring everything I learned of being a CEO and how does that actually make me a better marketer in this role today than I would have been, you know, six years ago prior to the experience at Bonobos. And so it was the attraction of the brand and the challenge and then knowing I can actually bring something new to the party as a CMO and and leverage everything I have learned up until this point in my career, particularly the CEO experience. Mickey, I want to go a little deeper on something you just said there. You said you bring, you're bringing all the experiences, your experience to the table with this, and, and especially the role as CEO of Bonobos. Talk more about that. How, how are you a different CMO now because you had that stint as CEO of Bonobos? So I think part of this goes actually the, back to the beginning of my career, and, and you know this, Jim, but when you grow up in CPG and you're given the responsibility of the P&L, it really does sort of show, sharpen your focus in terms of your impact as a marketer. And that was early on in my career, but that was on you know speed, so to speak, when you're the CEO. You know, you're really thinking about, you know, every single piece of the experience for your customers, the experience for your associates, but also you're thinking ultimately about the business outcomes. So I think going from, you know, CEO back to CMO again, I would say first thing is, you know, I really sharpened my focus on the outcomes of every single thing that we do from within the marketing communications um, organization. I think the second thing that I have brought to bear is a deep appreciation and understanding of if you're going to transform a brand, you have to transform it from the inside out. And how do you do that and transform a company culture? And that is something that I had to do, you know, at Bonobos as we transformed, as we went through everything from, you know, growing into being acquired by Walmart, which had a cultural impact through the pandemic, which as a retailer had a massive impact on us culturally. All of those experiences around how do you build, grow, nurture culture, I am bringing to bear now in a moment of cultural and brand transformation for TIAA. And I think that is, you know, something that, I definitely think about, you know, sort of front and center every day in this role is how do I inspire and energize, you know, 15,000 associates at TIAA for this, you know, for this new day, for this journey that we're on, which isn't always going to be easy. Transformation isn't always easy. So you have to keep people inspired, energized and motivated. So I think there's the the kind of outcome focus. I think there's the the cultural focus. I think the third part that I bring with me now is a deep desire to understand every nook and cranny of the business. And one of my team, um, and I take this as one of his greatest compliments to me, says, you're an incredible student of the business. You know, I walked into this business and knew nothing about financial services. And I am the last person to have engaged with my retirement plan, let me tell you. I have now, I'd like to add. But, you know, so I have spent, you know, the last 18 months since I've been in this role, really scrutinizing every corner of the business, trying to understand, yes, compliance, which is a a necessary requirement as a marketer in this space. How does the product work? You know, 
where do all the revenue streams come from and how do they operate? You know, how are we building the technology stack? Really trying to understand every nook and cranny of the business. And part of that is because it satiates my appetite for learning. But part of it is so that I can make sure that as we're thinking about our marketing and communication strategies and plans, we're doing it with a rounder knowledge or a more complete knowledge of the entire ecosystem within which we're operating, particularly when it comes to that associate communications part and how do we think about the cultural transformation. It would be it would be foolish of me to think that I could drive a, a, a narrative internally around a culture change without understanding the issues that you know people in technology are facing or in our customer call center or our TIA India offices um, in Mumbai and Pune. So that for me, I think is the third part, which was a requirement as the CEO. You have to kind of be able to, you know, dig in and switch from one thing to another all the time. And I think that's something that is I'm bringing to bear in this role as CMO as well. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. We talked last time, 22 months ago, about storytelling, and you're a big believer. You have a strong conviction in the power of storytelling, especially inside a company, and we're talking about yes. transformation starts on the inside. Could you speak a bit, Mickey, about when and how you develop such a conviction that storytelling is an important strength for you to build on and also an important capability for being a world-class CMO? That is a great question. I, I wonder sometimes whether being a storyteller, is it innate or is it something you learn? I think for me, it might be a little bit innate. My father is an incredible storyteller. I wonder whether it's something I sort of learned at his knee, so to speak. I think in terms of an appreciation of the power of it um, has, you know, came relatively early on in, in my career. But you know where I feel like I learned it the most is actually not in the marketing craft, i.e. something that was consumer facing, but actually having to, you know, relatively early in my career, once I learned packaged goods, having to actually articulate the value of marketing to the CFO and specifically the value of brand marketing to the CFO. And if you're going to ask someone to cut a check, you better be clear on the problem you're trying to solve, how you're going to solve it, what someone can expect to see in return. And I think that that is probably where I first really internalized it on a very personal level of if I have a personal conviction around the need to do something, yes, my intuition is strong, I'll confess, but I've got to externalize 
that intuition, if you like, and externalize that thought process. It's a bit like showing you're working in math at school, isn't it? I had to externalize it to a CFO to make them a believer too. And I think that's probably where I realized it. And it's interesting because one of the things I talk to my team about now is actually we can have the greatest marketing plans in the world for this organization, whether it's for our asset management business, Nuveen, our retirement business, um, TIAA. But if people don't understand the value of it and people don't understand the impact it's having or why we're doing it, we're, we're operating in isolation from the business. And that is a rapid route to ruin, in my view. So actually, the importance of storytelling in my current role is yes to my executive committee peers and you know getting my budget signed off. But more importantly, it's about how are we engaging in our marketing and communications plans, our cross-functional you know, business partners so that they really understand the value that we are driving for them. And they're not saying, and it's how much, which, you know, as marketers, we, you know, that conversation happens a lot. So that's, I think, where I have learned it from an internal perspective. I think externally, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit different. I'm sure I have said this to you before, which is, you know, stories sell. And I think the most visceral example of that I had from an external facing perspective was, you know, at eBay, which is, you know, a million years ago in my career now. But this was in the days before we talked about branded entertainment and branded content and clearly a million years ago um, versus a Barbie movie that must have done wonders for the Mattel business. But we um, created this series of stories at eBay. We called them Let Them Post. And we asked 75 storytellers to pick an item that they had that they were prepared to sell and tell a story about it. And I remember there was one of them was a creator picked his Martin guitar and he sat on camera. And this is a long time ago. Now he sat on camera and he played his guitar and he told a story of the guitar through song and what it had meant to him. And what we saw was, was that the listing that had his video with his story, his song on it, compared to a Martin guitar without that sold for something like, you know, eight to 10 times more because people bought into the narrative, the story of his product. And I thought that for me was one of the times when I realized more than ever that, you know, people really want to understand the deeper story. Yes, they want to understand the features and functionality of the Martin guitar, but they want to know, you know, What's it, what's it going to do for them? What are they going to be able to do with it? How is it going to change their lives? That might seem a bit of an overpromise for a guitar, by the way, but you get the point is that the deeper story was what really resonated. And I saw it in the business outcomes. And that was probably, you know, this is 2006 now. So this is, you know, light years ago, but it, it really drove home to me the importance of storytelling from a business impact perspective. I was. We have a cottage in California and we're naming it, you know, just having fun and having a sign made How on fun. Etsy. And, and so I was just Googling around about names and and all. And, and I found an article where if you have a house that has a special name, it sells better. It's your point. It's the Martin guitar yeah, story. It's the same thing. Yeah. Have you picked a name yet? Yes, we have. The Crescent Moon Cottage. Oh, cute. And why, and why Crescent Moon? See, you want to learn more. That's the power of the story. I do. You see? <laughs> because it was it was built in the 1920s, and we have the original shutters, which have crescent moons on them. And we restored them. 
Oh, that's so and lovely. Them a beautiful blue. So it's a Crescent Moon Cottage. And you know, it's so interesting. It's such a good example because it's telling you the backstory. Yes. And it's connecting to the heritage yep. of the business. And, you know, I have always believed that, you know, in the series of transformations I've done in my career, and when people have said to me, what is this brand now? And, you know, how does it stand up today in a very different cultural context? Certainly TIA, totally different cultural context than its founding 105 years ago. But I've always gone back to the brand DNA. I've always gone back and found the universal truth, what made it great, what made that home extraordinary and different and unique when it was built is still true today even if it's operating in a different context and you may have to position it differently from a brand perspective or you know use different channels there's a truth yeah well your your company TIA has an amazing origin story it does you know, which i think we'll we'll talk about a bit later but just an incredible one hey before we leave storytelling you've always been a pretty good at this you said your dad was good at it so two questions, what made your dad or what makes your dad so great at storytelling? And the second is, how have you become a better storyteller in your year and a half at TIAA? What makes my dad a good storyteller? He's got some stories to tell, let me tell you. He's 86 <laughs> years old. It starts old. with that, right? I mean, he's 86 years old and he traveled the world as a as a retail buyer in the days where, you know, when he would phone home, there was that awful delay and he'd be like, I've got to go now, it's really expensive. You know, so he had some great stories to tell. I think that he genuinely likes to hold an audience and engage with people. And he has a deep appreciation of other people and what makes them tick. And he cares. And I do think part of being a storyteller is that, you know, old adage of, you know, know thy audience. So, Understanding your audience, what is it that they want to hear? Not necessarily what is it the story that you want to tell, but what is it about your story that's going to resonate and have an impact with them? Now, if my sister were listening to this or my brother, they'd be like, Yeah, that's great, Mickey, but he does sometimes go on. And it's true. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. At 86 years old, he does. But, you know, he's such a great storyteller that actually I'm in the process of actually trying to get his stories written and not necessarily because we're about to publish a bestseller. That is not the case. But I actually think that for me, on a personal note, this is about handing the stories to the next generation. And, you know, my youngest child is a, I have a brother who's a lot younger than me. You know, they're about to have their third child. You know, my dad won't be around forever. So I do want those stories to stories to persist. So that's a side note. But in terms of how has my storytelling got better at TIAA, you know, I think the thing that I've had to really hone, and I already alluded to it, is that in an organization of this size, you need to be able to scale your storytelling. You know, you need to be able to stand on a stage, which I had the good fortune to at the beginning of the year, and say, we are here to fight, literally fight, to secure the future of millions more Americans. So you have to come up with the, the really clear, impactful language that can scale across an organization. So I think there's the scaling piece. I think the second piece that I've got better at is hearts and minds. In an organization of, you know, 15,000 people, you know, not, who don't necessarily, you know, all get the chance to kind of get to know me and for me to go into the, like, the nitty gritty of the story, there's always going to be people for whom you have to pull the heartstrings. And there's people that want to say to you rationally, like, make it make sense for me. 
So I think that is something that I have, you know, started to hone my craft in is speaks to the heart and the mind in the room. And I think the last thing is, you know, storytelling, you know, by its virtue is often, you know, oral in nature. And if you think about the great storytellers in history, that is, it's an oral tradition. But the reality is, to my point again about the scale of the organization, you have to be able to put it on a page because that's the thing that travels. That's the thing that becomes, you know, the, as someone said to me the other day, the cube porn. It's the thing that people put on their wall and they kind of can refer back to. And that is a whole other craft, which is, and it doesn't have to be a PowerPoint slide, by the way, but what is the thing that the artifact, if you like, that memorializes your story in a way that people can can turn to, you know, again and again and again and kind of reground themselves in? And that has been for me, you know, something I started to learn at eBay as a large organization and um, in and of itself, I have definitely, you know, started the work is never done, Jim. I have started to continue to kind of hone in the last, you know, 18 months with the organization. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. We talked about you admire your dad's talent for storytelling. How about companies or brands that you admire for their storytelling? Do any come to mind? I mean, there's there's always a million. I have to say, of course, I watched the Barbie movie last yeah. week. Um, and I do think that, you know, Greta Gerwig did an incredible job of actually telling us a, a modern day story of a brand that is, you know, decades and decades old. And I, I obviously have an amazing admiration for what they have done, not just as a brand, but as filmmakers. I think that's amazing. But so that's very top of mind. But I think for me, when I think about brands that are great storytellers, it's it's those that have been very consistent in their storytelling over time, but found you know increasingly fresh and, and relevant ways to do it. And honestly, I think that that the brands that stick in my mind, which are not going to be a surprise to you, Jim, whether it's you know a Dove or a Mastercard or a Nike, I think they have done such a good job of you know staying really true to their story over time and finding new different innovative ways you know to bring to bring that to life but but you know their story as a consumer you you know it and i think that's what's really you know impressive it's probably the ones that kind of spring to mind the most now your origin story at TIAA it's 105 years old as you said started by Andrew Carnegie to help yes. teachers have a financially secure retirement, which is, which was a noble purpose or mission and yeah. still is. You've expanded beyond that. I know that. But when I look at the activities you're involved with outside TIA, a lot of them are around students and education. Yes. So I think that's interesting. Could you speak a bit to that, Mickey? Was it, or is there some confluence of your personal purpose and what this company is about that attracted you? Absolutely. And it's interesting because some of this was actually after I took the role looking back that I was like, 
oh, this is sort of why it feels right. I'm not sure I was had the foresight when I was taking taking the role, but you know, my parents um, really believed in education, and we didn't go on fancy holidays. We didn't have fancy cars. You know, my parents would buy houses, flip them, and the money that they made paid for our school fees in the UK. So my parents always believed in education, um, and it's interesting because actually none of them were particularly well-educated, but they really believed in it for me and my siblings. So I think that's part of it because that is what I believe gives people equal access to opportunity. And if we level the playing field in terms of access to education, we will level the playing field or more likely to level the playing field in the in the workplace, you know, and and beyond. And I say that for gender, for race, socioeconomic barriers, and more. So I do think that that innate passion and belief in education is something that maybe implicitly um, drew me to TIAA. And when I have been thinking about, on a personal note, where do I want to invest my time outside of the office? I have been, you know, really clear with, you know, myself, because there's many things I that compete for my time is what is the stuff where I feel like I can I can make an impact, but where I believe it too can make an impact over the long term. So this idea of equal access to opportunity in education, you know, student sponsor partners where I'm a mentor is an organization that essentially pairs you with a high school student and you mentor them through through high school and the process of getting into college. And it's focused in New York and it's people obviously from, you know, some kind of disadvantaged community. And for me, that is helping one person, but I believe the participating in that organization, that organization can will scale to impact the lives of, you know, many hundreds, um, if not thousands of individuals. And, you know, the the for-profit board that I sit on is called Youth Enrichment Brands, and that is about giving children access to explore their passions outside the academic field, but also inside the academic field, mainly in sport right now, but with aspirations to go beyond sport, with this idea of giving people access to experiment with different things is a way of them discovering their passion and their vocation and, you know, again, opening up opportunities. So it is, there is a personal, there's a personal narrative connected to this based on my, you know, childhood and my upbringing and what my parents deemed to be important, coupled with, you know, now my personal belief system and how I want to spend my time. And there is definitely an overlap with TIAA, not just in its founding story of being for educators, but actually this idea of, you know, how do we increase opportunity and access to a secure retirement for more people? In the belief that a secure retirement, yes, that helps you as an individual, has a massive impact on your community. It has an impact on your children because they hopefully won't have to, you know, support you financially. It has an importance for the broader community at large because then this community at large isn't having to support you. You know, we have we have a ton of research out of our institute that shows the positive impact on communities of people feeling financially secure and as a result kind of physically and psychologically secure 
at the moment that they finish work too. So there's definitely a melting pot in there. You're a great marketer, Mickey. And this the stat you shared earlier on the show that 40% of Americans are not prepared, financially prepared for retirement. What's the consumer insight behind that amazing stat? I'm sure your company is all over that and how to change that dialogue. But what what it, what is the consumer insight? <laughs> this is the multi-layered answer as well. Um, I think that Probably there's a, there's a number. One is that people always feel that retirement is a long way away, and so the reality is is that people um, don't even necessarily think about it um, until much later, you know, in their careers. Then often that is for extremely good reason, and that can look different by community. But either they think it's you know it's forty years away, I worry about it later. They, so they don't want to think about it and they don't want to put the money away. They can't put the money away because of how much they're earning or maybe they are supporting other family members. You know, So these stats are actually you know, worse in the Hispanic community, particularly you know, that community because there is a cultural bent is the right word, I think, to you know, support your family, whether it's here in the US or back at home. So there's definitely like can't and don't want to think about the long term, I think is sort of the the biggest part of it. I think on the can't, obviously, that is also different by socioeconomic bracket and is all to do with pay equity, which is something that we talk about a lot. So I think it is our job is as a brand to say, how can we continue to be an advocate for pay equity and access to benefits? How can we educate people that they should be making the most of the benefits that are offered to them by their employers, which so many people are. But we also need to increase access for people who may not have access to an employer plan so that they can start to think about it. And we also have to, and this is the tricky bit, by the way, there is a an urgency that we need to create that is going to hopefully or will hopefully stimulate behavior change. So that even, yes, it's 40 years away, how do people start saving for it now? And I don't want us to, you know, you see many, many people say, well, you know, save the money you would have spent on a cappuccino and put it into your retirement fund. I think that's a little bit of victim shaming. I think we don't want to um, tell people how they should spend their money. That's none of my business. You, you, you make your own decisions, but I think we can show them the benefit over time if they make different decisions earlier. But I'm not going to tell you the decision to make because you earn that money. That's your, that's your choice and your decision. So I think it operates. There are many like financial and real reasons. There's like understanding reasons. And then there's like emotional, like lack of sense of urgency reasons that all sit behind that stat. And it does look, as I said, very different by different communities. Lots of work and opportunity for you, for you and your team. It's really, in, it's really interesting, and you know, money is emotional. So for me, yes, you know, we can get into the rational, you know, percentage return rates. But the more interesting part is actually understanding the emotional triggers that will get someone to invest in their future. Yeah. Now there seems to be a lot of creativity happening at TIAA. As I was researching you and your company in this episode, yeah, lots and lots of interesting initiatives, partnerships, 
you're you're in part of North New York Fashion Week. You're working with people like Abby Abby Wambach. So what's happening? We talked about culture a few minutes ago and transformation. What's happening in TIA to be generating this unexpected creative work? Yes, a few things. I think that when Tashunda Brand Duckett, the CEO, started a few a couple of years ago now, and there was an acknowledgement of the need to transform this business and transform this brand. There was we talk about a new day at TIAA, and I would say her kind of resolute focus on transforming this business has given permission, if you like, to break some glass. And I think that's really critical. I think the the, sort of the second thing is a realization that we need to break from our past as TIAA, where we are seen sometimes as sort of the sleepy, as sort of the sleepy giant. We need to break from our from our own past and have people sit up and go, oh, oh there's something different happening over there. I call them symbols of reevaluation. So, you know. That, I think, has been an important sort of strategic mindset, if you like, that has given way to some of the creativity. And then I think the third part was around the fact that the point I just made, if we want to get people to sit up and pay attention to their retirement and even start thinking about it, we are going to have to find ways to connect with them that aren't necessarily about, you know, an ad that says, you know, if you invest in lifetime income with TIAA, you will have, you know, X thousand dollars per month in your paycheck, you know, when you retire, because people aren't necessarily going to, you know, listen to that. So that was the, what was the sort of the gen- strategic genesis of it is how can we surprise people and have them, you know, connect with them in ways that they kind of wouldn't have imagined, if you like. And so when we came up with the campaign platform of retiring equality, you know, about 17 months ago, 16, 17 months ago now, it created a platform for us to take a stand on as well um, and closing that 40% gap with a focus on obviously women first and we've turned our focus to black Americans now. So it gave us a focus and a platform for that creativity that has honestly, you know, is the gift that keeps on giving. And you mentioned the the dress that we made out of paper money that showed down the runway at New York Fashion Week with Fee Noel. You know, we're actually launching later this summer a song in partnership with Wycliffe that, again, all of this is about how do we make this part of a cultural conversation with a younger demographic such that we start to even have them think about, you know, their retirement and their investments, but all able to happen because there is a appetite and permission and a need to break glass. By the way, Wyclef came into my class at Cannes, my CMO accelerator class at Cannes, a couple of years ago, and he, oh, he? he sang a song about CMOs. Oh, I love him. Wow. So, so ask him about that. Have him repeat it for you. He is um, he is performing our new song um, for us at a, a, a small event next week. So I haven't actually heard it yet, <laughs> but I'm excited to see how a talent like him can make a compelling song around retirement. And I and I'm sure he did the same for CMOs, Jim. Yeah, he did indeed, and he will for you. He's great. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, this is a hard category. We talked about that already. It's multi-layered, it's complex, lots of competition, 
lots of confusion. So is all this creativity working? Is it starting to differentiate your company among this very big and complicated competitive set? Yes, it is. I think that there's, when I think about the impact, um, I think about have we had people sit up and pay attention? And, you know, it is a complicated business because there's multiple audiences. I have, you know, plan consultants who are advising plan sponsors who are the institutional owners of the retirement plans. And then there's the end user like you and me who at the end of the day, we need to put them to put their money into their retirement plans. I think one of the interesting things for me has been that the audience that has paid the atten attention the most quickly is actually plan sponsors who have are saying to me, you know, and to our distribution teams, oh, we see where you're going now and we want to be part of this journey. Um, and we too want to solve the retirement crisis. So a plan sponsor would be? The CHRO of Harvard, somebody who okay. is administering, yep. thank you, administering the plan at a given institution. And I, I mentioned a higher education. It could be Mount Sinai. It could be Starbucks. Anyway, so they're the ones that who are obviously at the end of the day, the, the, the kind of first port of call for us. And they're the ones that are like, oh, wow, okay. And it's been a really, retiring equality, the campaign has been an incredible you know, door opener for us um, with, that, with that audience, which is really exciting. Now, what we've had to do and, you know, is, and we're continuing to do is what do you do once the door is open? And when you have been a monopoly for a long time, I will tell you that marketing isn't necessarily your strongest muscle. So now the, it's the drumbeat of interactions that we have with those plan sponsors over time, they're really starting to move the needle for us. What I will also tell you though, this is not necessarily a fast moving category. <laughs> this is not like selling pants on the internet, which I did for five years. The sales cycle is longer. The convincing people to move their money takes longer. All of that stuff is so much more of a considered purchase, but we've definitely got people paying attention We've definitely um, got their ears now, and our job is to continue the drumbeat to convert that into action over time. Mickey, we're going to flip into the creative brief, and my first question for you is, well, last time I talked to you, I asked you what your first brand was that made an impact yes. for you in your life, and you said Lego. So if you had to choose a second brand, or if you ch want to change your answer, what would that be? <laughs> I'm not change my answer because I do still you know love the Lego brand and think it was the first brand that had an impact on me as a consumer I think the first brand who had an impact on me as a marketer actually was a brand that um called Fructis uh which is a L'Oreal product yep. that I actually worked on um when I started my career and okay it was the first brand I worked on but why did it have an impact on me um a few reasons I actually um joined L'Oreal just as they were launching it and it was this runaway success 19% market share you know in its first few weeks of launch and then what happened there was a tv show like a consumer watchdog tv show in the UK that got some complaints and basically said this shampoo leaves your hair greasy and <laughs> All of a sudden, that 19% share went down to, you know, let's call it basically zero. And the reason it had an impact on me was it taught me a lot. It taught me the importance of the product 
and that no marketing about marketing in the world is going to make up for a suboptimal product. The power of PR and word of mouth and the importance of research, because I was working in the research function and I was the, you know, wet behind the ears marketer who was told, go find out, is it really leaving people's hair greasy? Like, what's going on? Is this just like five people? You know, is it to do with the water quality where these people live? Anyway, the importance of research and, and data to really try and understand the core of the problem. So it's a, it's a different, very different answer, Jim, but it's something that taught yep. me a lot um, as a marketer. And so I often think about that experience and how formative it was for me. We talked the last time about roses, thorns, and buds. Oh, my husband's built a website now to put that oh, well, on. Well, there the you way. go. Well, let's, let's, <laughs> at, at the la last time we talked, you were talking about a family ritual you had. Yes. It was coming out of the pandemic where you talked about a, ro a rose in your day, which is something you're grateful for, a thorn, something you're wrestling yes. with, and a bud, something you're looking forward to. So what now for you, Mickey, are your roses, thorns, and buds? So my rose is that, you know, I've been at this organization for 18 months. And when I came in, there was this brand transformation journey. But as I already talked about, this transformation of marketing communications and building that as a muscle for this organization. And it's been a journey because, you know, you need to address people, processes, strategies, plans. My rose is that I was with my team this week, and I hope they listen to this. I was with my team this week, and I was so incredibly proud of the progress we have made over the last 18 months to really realize marketing as a strategic growth lever for this business. So that is my rose from this week. I'm going with this week. My thorn, let's go there. My thorn is the fact that I is, is more of a personal one, to be honest with you, which is that I've been renovating a house for two years and it's still not finished. And so I haven't been moving for the last year, Airbnb to Airbnb every two to four weeks. So I will be very, very happy when that's open, uh, over, sorry, and open the house. <laughs> and my bud, apart from looking forward to moving into my home, finally, I think my, my bud is Actually, in 2024, we are going to be building on the success that we have had with retiring equality, and we are really going to go out very loudly with owning this position of fighting to secure the future of millions more Americans. We are modernizing the way the brand looks and feels. We are changing a ton of the language to make, de decrypt it a lot, which has been my number one thing is how do we decrypt this category? And we're going out with a bolder stance beyond retiring equality on that mission and purpose. And for me, that is incredibly exciting as a marketer, but as a leader, that is the legacy impact that I hope that I can have at this organization is really putting it on the map as a brand who has a purpose that matters and that will make a difference in people's lives. So that's my bud for the beginning of 2024, Jim. Those are beautiful answers, Mickey. And I love, and the words you use about your purpose are very powerful. Thank you. And words matter. They're very they powerful. They really do. And it's been so interesting. Words matter. I mean, I think I will, you believe that. I believe that. When we used the word fight, there was a really interesting conversation that happened internally at, was that the right word? And I had a very strong conviction that if, if we really believe in this, if we believe it matters, it's going to be worth fighting for because good things are. Okay. You're a big believer in strength finders. I as am. a leadership tool <laughs> and a leadership philosophy. And one of your strengths is positivity, which when I asked you when you were- Yeah, Bonobos, full circle. 
<laughs> yeah. I asked you, what were you leveraging the most of bonobos? And you quickly answered positivity. If I asked you that today, and I am asking you that today at TIA, what strength are you leveraging the most? I'm going to choose two, which I know is cheating, but woo, which is winning others over. I think to my point about cultural transformation and needing to change from the inside out and using the power of storytelling um, to do that is one that I am constantly deploying. And the other one is activator, which is a catalyst to make things happen. And I'm a, I believe that my role as a leader of the marketing communications organization is to be a catalyst for my leaders and their teams to do great work. And I believe that we have another role to play and I have another role to play, which is to be a catalyst for change within the organization and a catalyst for the transformation journey that we're on at large. So those are the probably the two. My activator tends to go into overdrive sometimes and my team is like, whoa, whoa, slow down. But I think for the most part, I'm able to leverage those two in tandem to create change. Who has been the most inspiring person in your life? My dad. Yeah, I think it's my dad. For all the reasons we talked about? For all the reasons we talked about. um, And I think, you know, for being a real grounding and stable influence in my life that's allowed me to go and do all the crazy things I've done, like move to the US and, you know, have a crazy career and all those amazing things I've had the opportunity to do. Well, Mickey, this has been a lovely chat. When you switched over to TIAA, what, eight, I don't know, 18 months ago or so, Yeah, I reached out to you and I said, we have to talk about why you <laughs> became a CMO and, and left the yes. CEO role, why you changed categories. And you said, give me a little time. And so I'm so happy you committed back then. I'm so happy we've had this discussion. You're a joy to speak with. You're an inspiration. And I'm absolutely looking forward to seeing more of what you and your team are doing because the mission, the purpose is hugely important for for all the reasons we talked about. And you delivering on that purpose will make a huge difference for people and for our society at large. So good luck and thank you for this wonderful chat. Thank you so much, Jim. Such a pleasure to be back and chat to you again, and I hope to see you soon. That was my conversation with Mickey Onverall. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. The first one is transformation was a big theme in the show. The important lesson on this one is it has to start at the top. The CEO at TIAA said, we need to transform ourselves, and she was fully behind it. The team is fully behind it. They have a united strategy. They have an extremely strong purpose. That's at the heart of any successful transformation. Second takeaway, this was a masterclass in storytelling. And when I asked Mickey what she leverages in storytelling, she quickly went to, you've got to be able to scale it in a large organization, and you've got to think about the hearts and the minds. The stories have to be about the hearts and the minds, and the story has to be consistent and creative. Third takeaway, This concept of roses, thorns, and buds, it's a wonderful idea for your personal life, for your family, and it's a wonderful idea for your business. To think about what you're grateful for, to think about something you're really wrestling with, and to think about what you're looking forward to. That kind of dialogue with your team, with your family, with your partner, always goes to good places. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.